uh, in Galatians chapter number 5, beginning in verse number 1, Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith, wherewith Christ hath made us free. Be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well, who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. But by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Now, over the past, oh, I don't know how many weeks it's been, 10 or 11 or 12 or 25, I don't even remember at this point, that we've been studying through the book of Galatians. We've taken a very, very interesting journey. Now, I gave you a short, simple outline when we first began this study, and we have echoed it a time or two for the entire book of Galatians. And I like this outline because I found this to be true, especially as a preacher. I told my wife yesterday, uh, I don't know how long I preached yesterday, but it felt like a long time to me, so it must have felt like an eternity to you all that were here. And I told her, I said, I just had too much outline for the time that I had. And that's the truth. If I could have taken and shown you my notes, I just I, I had bunches and bunches and bunches. And uh, one of the things that I found in an outline is that oftentimes the more simple an outline is, the more effective it will be. Sometimes preachers get kind of enamored with the idea of having the perfectly balanced, symmetrical, alliterated outline, having all this content. Uh, but sometimes you can have a lot of content without having a lot of substance. Amen? Uh, you say, what's that like, preacher? That's like going to the Chinese buffet. That's what that's like. You've got a lot of content, but you don't have a lot of substance. And you feel full when you walk away, but then give another hour or two, and you've forgotten that you even ate anything at all. And so an outline serves us best when it is exceedingly simple. Something that we can remember, something we can wrap our mind around, that we can grasp hold of. And so this outline was what we gave you. The first two chapters of the book of Galatians are personal. And Paul is giving his personal account of the grace of God in his life. And what has taken place through the grace of God, by the grace of God, for him, in him, and through him in the lives of those he's writing to. Let me say that every believer has a personal history with the grace of God. If you've ever been born again, then it only happened when you came in contact with that glorious grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And then the next two chapters are basically doctrinal in their approach. You say, well, preacher, what do you mean by that? Paul begins to show to us through Scripture, through several different avenues, both through, through common sense logic, through the testimony of God's covenant with Abraham, through the example of the types in the Old Testament concerning Isaac and Ishmael and, and Hagar and Sarah, how that the only way that a person can be justified is by the grace of God. That the law was never given to justify, the law never had the capacity to justify, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, and how that the only and singular way that a person can be born again is through grace. Now, I would go ahead and say to you that that doctrine is not necessarily universally accepted, even amongst those that call themselves Baptists. There's plenty that would call themselves Baptists or call themselves fundamental or call themselves old-fashioned or you can go on down a hundred thousand different labels that do not adhere to the purity of the teaching of the grace of God. That our standing in Jesus Christ is just that. It's a standing in Jesus Christ. Holy divorce from our attempts at righteousness or good works now, here's the very radical transition, and this is where it's going to begin to really get down onto our level and where we live. For you see, the first two chapters are personal, and the next two chapters are doctrinal. But in chapter number 5, we've entered into the part of the book of Galatians that is immensely practical. In other words, Paul has been speaking about the grace of God in his life. And Paul's been talking about the grace of God in God's uh, prophetic plan and in God's dispensational plan. He's been talking about how that God operates by grace. But in these chapters, Paul's going to talk about the grace of God in your life and in my life. There's not a whole lot of folks that would identify with us as far as the way we worship and, and the Bible we use and, and the doctrine that we have that would necessarily fuss with us that we're saved by grace. But let me say this. Paul begins to talk about how we're not only justified by grace. Now listen carefully, because I'm going to say a mouthful with this next statement. We are not just justified by grace. We are sanctified by grace. Now I don't know if you're aware of what was just said when I said that. But this is a radically different way of thinking than the average Christian has. Most Christians would tell you that, of course, they are saved by the grace of God. Of course, yeah, preacher, I didn't do anything. I was worthless. I was helpless. God saved me. Amen. And that's true. And I'd amen right along with them. But then most of them would say, now the next step is I have to try real hard to be what God wants me to be. You will find this in the Christian life. That the Christian life is successfully lived not through strength of will, but through the surrender of your will. Now I'm telling you, this is radically different than what most people believe, and they're not even aware of. Most folks believe that they have to become a good Christian by trying real hard, by finding out what it is that the church or their pastor or the other Christians expect of them, and then trying to adopt and have those things galvanized and superimposed upon them, and to embrace those things, and then if I, if I am those things, then I will be what I need to be. But the problem is, you can't be what you need to be by embracing those things. Those things are the outgrowth of the Christ life that is within us. Now, I'm aware some of those 
terms I use may not be real familiar, but Paul's going to familiarize us with them here in just a moment. Now, I want you to notice the very first phrase that we used here. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. There is a word I want you to pay extra special attention to in that verse, and it's the third word that we read. It says, Stand fast, therefore. There's lots of folks that think we'd be better served by taking all the wherefores and therefores out of our Bibles. But I'd have you know that much of the substance of our understanding of the Word of God comes from the use of words like wherefore, therefore, because of, in so much as, and phrases of that sort. And that word therefore tells us that the statement that Paul is making is absolutely inseparably connected and tied to the truth that he had just revealed. Now, if you're like me, I mean, it's been two weeks since we've stood here. And I've slept a time or two since then, and so sometimes it's hard to remember. But if you'll notice back in chapter number 4, what Paul has been speaking about is what the Bible here calls an allegory, and that's not an allegory in the literary sense of being a parable, but is uh, a word that we use that we're familiar with that is uh, represented by that word allegory, the word type. And so these were absolutely events that took place, there's no question about it, but they had a, a spiritual application. And he's talking about how uh, that God had made a promise to Abraham that by faith and by his good mercy and good grace and his faithfulness, that Sarah and Abraham would have a child in their old age. And Sarah and Abraham had waited around and that had not happened yet, but God had made a promise. And here's the thing, are we going to live by promise or are we going to live by logic? Now, God's not an illogical God. I'm not implying that. But there's times, if we're going to live by faith, it's going to be by faith, not by sight. Now, we preached on that a little bit last night. This thing is, this thing is a faith thing. Paul, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, There were times we were perplexed, but not in despair. Times when nothing made sense, but we knew God was still on His throne. God had made a promise that He was going to give a child. Abraham and Sarah decided that God's promise was not enough. And they needed through their own energies to accomplish this promise that God had made. And so Abraham takes Hagar, uh, who was uh, Sarah's handmaiden, to be his concubine. And he fathers a child with Hagar by the name of Ishmael. And Ishmael was representative of that old covenant, representative of that which is accomplished through the energy of the flesh, apart from faith in God, that which is our attempts at accomplishing something apart from the promise of God. And the Bible teaches us in chapter 4, and I'm not going to go over all of it, but it simply teaches us that that which comes of the law can only produce slaves. That which comes of bondage can only lead into bondage. And so it is with that thought in view, the exclusivity of the grace of God, that there's no other way to be saved, that all the Old Testament law will ever do is make you a slave and lead you into bondage. That that's all it did for the nation of Israel. Just as Hagar was a slave, the only kind of child she could have was a slave child. And just as the law is a thing of bondage, the only thing the law can make you is a child of bondage. There's no way but the grace of God. And it is within the light of that truth that Paul uses this abundantly strong language, Stand fast in this liberty. Now, I, I want to ask you something tonight. Is the grace of God something to stand fast in and over? 
Now, there's a lot of uh, compromise in the day that we live in. You know that? There is. A lot of folks saying, well, let's just not talk about this or talk about that because we don't agree. Let's just talk about what we can agree on. And I will agree with this. There's a lot of silly stuff we can fuss and fight over that ain't going to amount to a hill of beans in eternity. But the grace of God is not one of those things. The grace of God is something worth taking a stand on and a stand over. And you have to understand that as you live your Christian walk, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be sensational when I make this statement, but you're going to be surrounded with people that are trying to entangle you in bondage. You're going to be surrounded with people that are trying to get you to play this game of being something that you're not, and of trying just to do it for the sake of doing it. Something you have to understand is that when man sets up these standards, he does that because it glorifies himself. That's what Paul says in verse number 17. He says of chapter 4, They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. What he's saying in, in chapter 4 is, is they're willing to put you under bondage so that you can be another notch in their ministerial belt. We have to be careful in the way that we live, and we have to appreciate and value the grace that God has allowed us to stand in and the liberty that He's allowed us to stand in. Now, this word liberty and bondage, these words are very, very paradoxical in the Word of God. And what I mean by that is this, that what means liberty to the world don't mean liberty to God. And what means bondage to the world don't mean bondage to God. God's understanding of the words liberty and bondage are vastly different from the world's understanding of liberty and bondage. You see, to the world, liberty means you can do anything you like. But that's not what liberty means to God. Liberty to God means that you have the freedom to choose the right thing. And to not do it just because you're constrained to do it, but to do it out of love and out of volition. By the same token, the world defines bondage as people trying to restrain you from doing anything. And yet God defines bondage in His Word as that grip and hold that sin has over us that it can make us want to do things that we know are not the best for us. Now isn't that interesting? Almost polar opposite in their definitions. And yet God's definition deals with the want to of the matter and the will of the matter. Only divine grace can change your want to about something. I remember hearing Lester Olaf say one time, he used to say, you know, I do all the drinking that I want to. I do all the gambling that I want to. He said, I, you know, I do all the running around that I want to. He said, the difference is when I got saved, God changed my want to. And as God defines liberty and bondage, it's, it's in relation to the will. Does the will have liberty to choose and freedom? You know, the Bible says that if Christ hath made you free, you're free indeed. The lost man, though he may feel as though he's in liberty because he can do whatever he wants and he seems to be unchecked in his behavior, uh, he's still under bondage because he can only do that which sin drives him to do. But as a regenerate, born again, freed by the grace of God believer, we have a choice in the matter. We can do the wrong thing, but we can also do the right thing. God has given us a liberty that is beyond the comprehension of this natural world. And Paul makes us understand that this liberty is not to be forfeited at any expense. He's not talking about a life of, of license and, and talking about a life of lasciviousness, but rather a life of liberty. Not that we might choose the wrong thing, but that we might choose the right thing and really be choosing when we choose it. 
Did you get what I just said? That we might choose the right thing and really be choosing when we choose it. That's where they infringe upon your liberty. Is by setting up a bunch of straw men and saying, well, you do this because your pastor expects you to, because the denomination expects you to, because the church expects you to, when really the only right decision and right motive is to do it because Christ expects us to. That's the liberty that God gives us. That we're no longer entangled again with this yoke of bondage. And by the way, that, that word entangled is interesting. I'm not going to focus on it. But can I give you a phrase that, that I couple with it? And it's the idea of being tripped up. Tripped up. You ever been walking? We, we've got, we worked very hard in our church to get rid of all the cords off of our platform, you know, everything wireless and neat and clean. Uh, and, and then now we've added a whole bunch of stuff and it's right back to the same rat's nest it used to be. <laughs> But the reason we try to get rid of that, we don't want to get entangled again with it. As you're running, and that's the language that Paul uses down in verse number 7, he did run well. And understand that this Christian life is a race that we're running. There is a prize we're pressing toward. There is something that we're trying to apprehend. There is a finish line that we're pushing towards. How are we running? Legalism can trip us up in that run. It can stop us. And, you know, the worst thing, I, I remember I, I ran track for about three seconds when I was in school. And uh, one of the things that I realized is that when you're running, the easiest way to lose a race is to start looking at the fellow behind you or beside you. That's the quickest way to lose a race. The way that you win a race is you keep your eyes on the finish line. You don't worry about the person next to you. Don't get entangled running their race. Or don't let the person right in front of you. You know that sometimes, especially if you're any further behind in second place, you know that you can get ahead of the person in front of you and still lose the race. Did you gather that? You can get in front of the person in front of you and still lose the race. In other words, you can meet somebody's standard and get to be better to them, and that don't mean that you're pleasing Christ. We find in this passage, look at verse number 2. Paul says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you... Why did he say, I, Paul? I, Paul, say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Why did Paul say that? Why did he say, I, Paul? Well, the reason is because of the laundry list of credentials in Judaism that he had given in Philippians chapter 3. He was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul is saying that to make us understand that he is not lambasting circumcision, as it were. And even today, it's pretty common practice in, in Western culture uh, for a male child to be circumcised, not for religious reasons, but for medical reasons and things of that sort. That's just pretty common in the day that we live in. Uh, Paul says, behold, I, Paul, because he wants him to understand, I'm somebody that used to trust in my circumcision. I'm somebody that used to think I was somebody because I was a Jew. He's saying, God has saved me from that. And this is not the voice of inexperience speaking. I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, we're not going to take a very, very personal poll question here. But uh, I would say that uh, there's probably a very many of us that would fall into that category. Is that saying that Christ is of no profit to us because of something maybe that physically uh, has taken place in our bodies. No, that's not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying here is this. If you're looking to circumcision 
to define who you are as a believer. And by the way, circumcision here is representative of the entire law. It's representative of the whole way of Judaism. And Paul's saying, if you're looking to that to make you somebody, then Christ shall profit you nothing. He is again speaking of the exclusivity of our standing being in the law and in Christ. Uh, let me say that I've met folks. I remember knocking on the door one time, and, and a guy actually said to me, he said, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. He said, I believe that we have to do our best, and Jesus then does the rest. And that sounds good, and it rhymes, you know, but it is completely contrary to the teaching of Scripture. Let me go a step further and say this. If you're trusting in which version of the Bible you use, the way you look, the way you behave, the church you go to, any of those things, if you're trusting them to make you who you are in Christ, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, Paul uses some very interesting language here in uh, verse number 6, and I want to touch on it because of a statement I just made. He says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Theologically speaking, you're going to find people in either side of that ditch. And instead of using the term circumcision and uncircumcision, I'm not saying they're wrong, that's what needs to be said there, but let, let me use some terms that I think that, that we would use in our day that, that would very much identify with it. Let's use the term theologically right for circumcision and theologically left for uncircumcision. And think about what Paul just said. Paul's saying, hey, if you're on the ditch in your self-righteousness, that's not going to avail you anything. But by the same token, if you're on the ditch in your lack of standards and separation and morality, then Jesus won't avail you anything. I know people that take just as much pride in not being a Pharisee as the Pharisees do in being a Pharisee. Oh, let me say that again. I really want us to get that. I know people that take just as much pride in not being a Pharisee as the Pharisees do in being a Pharisee. I know folks, I had someone say to me one time, we were talking about the issue of dress standards. And this young lady said this to me. Oh, it sounded beautiful too, the way she said it. She said, I have been gloriously delivered from that form of legalism. And yet I would testify that this young lady had one of the worst spirits of anybody I've ever met in my entire life. Completely devoid of any surrender to Jesus Christ or devoid of any surrender to the authority of the Word of God. You see, she was just as proud about not being a Pharisee as the Pharisees are about being Pharisees. And I know, folks, if you don't believe it, get on Facebook sometime. They're all on Facebook. They spend all their time talking about how closed-minded we are because we believe the Bible. Spend all their time talking about how old they're, they're so enlightened, they're so above us, because they don't use old-fashioned hymnals and they don't use the King James Bible and they don't, you know, their preacher don't wear a suit in, ever any time he preaches. No matter what's going on, he's in the Hawaiian short, you know, shirt and the cargo shorts, and they've been delivered from the legal bondage that we are ensnared in. Paul says it's not about how straight you are and it's not about how crooked you are. It's about whether you're surrendered to Jesus Christ. I know some folks who's as straight as a gun barrel and just as hollow in their living. 
And then I know other people that they live their life like they're going down a, a, a water park slide. It's just wild and crazy all the time. And I know I'm on both sides that are hypocrites. Because truth be told, to be on either side of that thing and to think you're somebody is a hypocrite. The reality is who we are is alone in Jesus Christ. I am who I am because of Him. Not because of anything that I am. I believe Paul is saying this because he doesn't want us to misunderstand what he's saying. He says in verse number 3, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. This is a very interesting statement because you won't hear this passage uh, preached in, in most charismatic outfits. It's not just a matter of being better than the guy next to you. You see, if you're going to put your standing before God under the, the requirements of the law, then it has to be under the requirement of all the law. Not just what you pick and choose. This is where I am fearful that many of us fall short. In that we have looked to certain standards or ideals or certain things that, that we feel make us a real grade A Christian. But we're just blind to the hypocrisy of our failings in other ways. I said in a sermon, I don't remember when I said it, but there's a, there's a dirty little secret going on in Baptist churches. You're, you're ready to listen now. I've got your attention. There's a, there's a little deal that's going on in, in, in churches. You know what it is, don't you? It said, if you won't point out my backsliddenness, I won't point out your backsliddenness. We can both feel good about ourselves. The truth is, and I can't remember who said it, but we have a real guilt in multiplying our iniquity in things that we do prefer while touting our separation in things that don't appeal to us. There's certain things that don't appeal to me. I mean, I'll be, but I have never had a temptation to put a needle in my arm. And, and that don't make me better than anybody else. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to lift myself up. I'm just saying that's something I have never, ever struggled with in my life. But just because I've never had that temptation, I've never fallen in that way, that don't mean that I don't have my fair share of examples of ways that I have fallen and failed. And sometimes we take those sins that don't appeal to us and, and we thump our chests that we've never fallen to those. Meanwhile, as long as everybody else will agree with us, we'll ignore the things that we're doing where we are failing. Our apathy, our complacency, our total disinterest in revival and consecration to the cause of Christ. And we feel like we're somebody because we're not failing in some other way. You see, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything in Jesus Christ. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And that charismatic crowd that thinks because they can spout gibberish in some uh, language that they themselves don't know, that nobody knows, or because that they can uh, you know, fall out on the floor, uh, you know, slain in the spirit, or whatever it might be, they don't understand that they are literally putting themselves under the requirements of being perfect 24-7 if they're going to be somebody based upon that. See, what Paul's saying here is that uh, to attempt to gain any kind of standing before God through our own good works, we are adopting upon ourselves a yoke of bondage that we are incapable of bearing. And, and he says this in light of the truths he's given in chapter number 4. Now, Paul is not trying to say that the law is a bad thing. The law had its place. It was our schoolmaster to 
bring us unto Christ. But it has served that purpose. And for the believer justified in Jesus Christ, the Old Testament law, and I mean that in a literal sense, has, has no place as far as our approaching unto God through its standards. But then any means of trying to advance ourselves through our own energies, that has no place in the Christian walk. Look at what he says. Verse number 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Boy, there's that phrase. That phrase that everybody likes to talk about, fallen from grace. What is Paul saying? Let me say to you, this is the only time this, this uh, phrase is used in the Word of God. And just as with any twisting of Scripture, they have to divorce it from its context to try to make it mean what they say it means. Paul is not talking about folks losing their salvation. Because if you could lose your salvation, then all of us would have lost our salvation. Yea, and the people he was writing to would have lost their salvation. What Paul is saying is this, and it's used in the same uh, satirical and, and, and sarcastic language that he uses in uh, verse number 4. Christ has become of no effect on you, whomsoever you are justified by the law. You could almost read sarcasm in there, can't you? It's funny, nobody, everybody thinks sarcasm is so unchristian. But God is a God of sarcasm. He uses sarcasm right there. Justified by the law. Now, didn't he just get through saying earlier in the book of Galatians that by the works of law shall no flesh be justified? What's Paul saying? He's saying, whosoever of you think you are justified by the law, whosoever of you are attempting to be justified through your own good works, and again, I remind you, we have moved out of the realm of... of this merely talking about salvation. We're talking about sanctification at this point. We're talking about in the life of believers. As believers, there's many that still seek to be justified through good works. Even though they'd say, I've been saved by the grace of God, they're still trying to become what Christ expects them to be through their own energies. And he's saying, if the law can do that for you, then Christ is of no effect. Or can I put it as simple as I know how? If we could do it without a Savior, we wouldn't have a Savior. What did Paul say in, I believe it's chapter number 1, he said, if righteousness come by the law, or chapter number 2, if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Paul is saying if the law was capable of doing that, there'd be no need for Christ. The, the reason Christ came is because of the incapability of the law to justify us. Not just at the moment of salvation, but in our everyday life to sanctify us and to make us who we need to be in Christ. If the law could do that, Jesus would have never come. It can't do that. It's evident it can't do that. And so what of this phrase, fallen from grace? Now remember, he's talking about two categories of people here. Those that seek to be justified through works, those that seek to be justified through grace. What he is saying here is, and this is the irony of the charismatic movement that, that talks so much about falling from grace, is that their definition of falling from grace is really the polar opposite of what, it's exactly what God is condemning in this verse. The attempt to maintain our salvation and our sanctification through our good works. What Paul is saying here is that the sanctification that comes by grace and through grace is of a higher level 
than the sanctification that the law could ever accomplish. Now, did the law have a capacity of sorts to make people holy? Well, of sorts it did. It was a set of standards. It, it did give some instructions as far as, as remaining separate from the Gentile nations and, and, and not partaking in, in lewd and lascivious actions. So uh, the law did have some capacity to show a boundary and to, to say this is what you should do. But it was a lower grade. You remember what, what Christ said? He said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. It was a lower grade of, of morality, and it was just that morality, not spirituality. Spirituality can't take place until we're spiritually awakened. And that only takes place through the new birth, being born again through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints were not spiritually awakened. They could do nothing but morality. The attempt to adhere to a standard because it's what's expected of them, not because they have a heart's desire to be obedient and they have chosen through liberty to live that way. You see, that's a lower form. And the law was given, if I could put it this way, the law was given not so that we, the grace came not so that we could live out from under the law, but so that we could live above it. So that we could attain to a type of spirituality that is driven by love and by faith, not driven by fear and by pressure. And so when Paul says fallen from grace, what he is saying is this, and it's echoed in verse number 7 where he speaks of running well. He says, you, you had it. You knew it. You were, uh, you were Gentiles. You were pagans. You had no concept of Judaism. And yet God justified you through faith in Jesus Christ. It never entered your realm of thinking that you should keep the Old Testament law. And here you were pursuing a life of submission and surrender to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And God was radically transforming your life. You did run well. And then all of a sudden, someone hindered you. And you backed away from that pursuit. And you fell away from grace. You didn't fall out of justification. You didn't fall out of salvation. But you ceased in your pursuit of sanctification through the grace of God as opposed to sanctification through your own energies and through your own good works. Look at verse 7 with us. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? That's interesting language, is it not? Obey the truth. It's interesting to me that the sanctification that comes by grace is not mutually exclusive of obedience but rather embraces obedience, but does so through a higher motive. Now think about that. Don't you imagine that these Judaizers were looking at these Galatians and saying, well, you don't need to worry about it, you just need to obey. You just need to obey. With my little boy, you know, I mean, he, he's, not, he's, he's old enough to be mean, but he's not old enough that we're sure he knows what he's doing all the time, you know. So it's a very difficult time. He, he's not old enough for us to, like, lock him in a box and throw him out in the backyard yet, you know. But as a child, I remember, I mean, that, that, was, that was the word, obedience. Obey. 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 And yet now I live a life, and there is obedience, but it's obedience in honor, not obedience in fear. You understand the difference? When I was a child, it was obedience in fear. And I, you know, I mean, I, I talk all the time. I joke around. Y'all probably think my daddy beat me. He didn't. Uh, he, I guarantee you, he got it worse growing up than I got it growing up. 
And, that, and I guarantee you that's true. Uh, my daddy never raised an angry hand to me. But I did understand there were consequences if I did not obey. And it was in response to those consequences. When at a young age, I could not comprehend the result of my behavior. I, I didn't, you know, stuff sounds silly when you're young. I, I remember one time uh, hearing my daddy say, nothing good happens after 10 p.m. And you probably heard that too. And I remember thinking, well, that's silly. It's, there's tons of, it's 10 p.m. here, but you go across the world, and it's a whole different time. There's tons of good stuff going on at 10 p.m. But you see, that was the thinking of a child. Do you remember when your parents would say, you need to do this? And you'd think, that's silly. That's the thinking of a child. And so there must be punishment, and that punishment motivates. And it does. Nothing motivates like a whipping. That was the law. That was the law. Oh, the law could provide a degree of, of sanctifying in that it, it worked through fear. But now there's a whole different type of relationship. And it's one of obedience through honor. Listening to the advice that's given, absorbing it and hearing it out of love and honor and out of respect. You see, what Paul's saying here is he's not saying that liberty means living a life of, of, of total uh, you know, self-desire and self-will. That's nonsense. But liberty is the ability to do the right thing because you've chosen to do it. Not because you're afraid not to do it. That's what real biblical liberty is. And so I think Paul's trying to be very, very careful to make us understand that he is not advocating a life of, of, of wildness and, and of carnality. He's not saying we ought to throw all of our standards away and, and just live however we want to. And it's very interesting, the dynamic. One writer put it this way, that we as believers, are, are we live without law, and yet we are in lawed to Jesus Christ. We have the law of Christ as our motivating force. It's not that we live a life of lawlessness necessarily, but it's that that law is not something from above or without, but something within that has been placed within us through the Holy Ghost and the Word of God. Not through some inner guiding light or guiding force, but through the indwelling of the Holy Ghost and through the application of the engrafted Word that motivates us and changes our hearts. You remember the Old Testament uh, promise that was given that there would come a day when God would not write His law upon tables of stone but upon the flesh of their hearts? And that has taken place when the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, and we have been radically transformed. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. God has changed us, and it's not that we live and do what we want, it's that we live and do what He wants because it's what we want. He's changed us. He says this, and by the way, the, the rabbit that I just caught, uh, we started off talking about being obedient to the truth. Uh, liberty has to do with obedience. And not, it doesn't have to do with, with chaos and anarchy. And so obedience is not divorced from this idea of liberty, but it works in tandem with it. He says in verse number 8, This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. Well, I tell you, there, there's a lot of verse. I, I know churches, and I'm not against this. I've thought about doing it here uh, at times. You know, there's churches will, will, you know, sometimes they'll put verses up on the wall. 
And I've seen all kinds of, you know, verses put up on, on walls, you know. And I always wanted to put one on ours, that, you know, out of Second uh, Samuel when the lepers are outside the city. said, why sit we here till we die? <laughs> Amen. But, I, you know, I've always wanted to put verses up in places. And this would be a good one. This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. There's a lot of stuff that we allow in our lives that didn't come from the Lord. You see, that's what was going on. What Paul is doing is he's trying to draw their attention. He just asked them this simple question. Where did this come from? Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Where did this come from? Or can I ask it this way? Why are you doing what you're doing? You know, you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons and be dead wrong. The right thing and do it for the wrong reasons and be wrong. What's the motivation? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. And then he uses this interesting language. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Speaking about the effect of legalism in their lives. And something that I have found to be true is this. We all have a tendency. It's intrinsic to human nature. What was the old saying, keeping up with the Joneses? And you get that one person in there that can make people believe they're a better Christian because of the way that they live or the things that they do. And it won't be long before this one will trying to be trying to imitate them, and then that one will be trying to imitate them, and then this one will be trying to imitate them. And pretty soon you've got a whole church that is given over to trying to emulate either a pastor or an influential member or someone of that sort, and their whole spiritual well-being is vested in trying to live up to their approval. Again, I'm not advocating carnality. And Paul's not advocating carnality too. What we're talking about is the will, the motive. Why are we doing what we're doing? Leaven in the Word of God always represents sin. You go all through the Word of God and it talks about the leaven of the uh, Pharisees, which is what? Hypocrisy. And he's talking about this hypocrisy that has spread through them like a cancer. It says in verse 10, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. Well, this is an encouraging word that Paul's given. Paul's not given very many encouraging words in the book of Galatians. But this is one of the encouraging words he gives. He gives them the benefit of the doubt and a word of encouragement and a word of faith in them. And he says this, I have confidence in you, but notice this qualifying statement, through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded. Listen to me. The only thing that can deliver you from that mindset is for you to learn to live for an audience of one and for you to learn to get your heart dedicated and surrendered to Jesus Christ. You know something I've found? I've never met anyone that when they sold out to Jesus Christ, they became more carnal. Never met anyone. I've never met anyone that when they got dedicated to the Lord, lowered their standard of living. Never met anyone that did that. So Paul's not saying that you ought to start living more loose, and by living more loose, you're drawing more lost folks, and then your church will be bigger. I think that's the problem with a lot of our churches, is I think a lot of them are filled with unregenerate people that have never been saved. But because a standard has been set up, and they know how to follow the Pied Piper and live in that way and, and emulate that standard, they just slide on by. And it's okay because they're, you know, they're, they're meeting that same standard and that's all that matters. Paul's not advocating that. He's saying the Lord is the only one that can deliver you from this mindset. 
Through the Lord, I trust that you'll be none otherwise minded. I trust through the Lord that He can get your mind refocused on what its proper priority is. And we need to understand that the only way that this adjustment can take place is through a closer walk with Christ and through a surrender to Him. He says in verse 11, by the way, let's mention the end of verse 10 because I think it's important that he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. Uh, I, I had someone fussing at me just last night over this whole uh, Osteen thing. And I, listen, I mean, I, I could give a plug, Nickel. Honestly, I, I'm being serious. I'm not being ugly. Uh, if it wasn't Osteen, there'd be another one just so I can ride after him with a bigger church. But the truth of the matter is, people a lot of times will attack a... a would attack these false prophets they would a lot sooner attack the, the pastor or, or attack a man of God than they would attack one of those folks. And I just, it, it just irks me that there's this notion that it is wrong to be critical. The Word of God commands us to be critical. Beloved, believe not every spirit. That's cynicism, that's criticism. But try the spirits to see whether they are of God. That is biblically mandated. And I'm not saying that we're the preacher police or the profession police. And I'm not saying we ought to spend all our time uh, trying to go and dethrone this, you know, this guy or that guy or this woman or that woman. I'm not saying that. But we need to understand that an attitude of skepticism is a biblical attitude. And we need to adopt that attitude. If we would criticize a lot of these hirelings and quit criticizing a lot of those that are in our, our own church family, we'd find the cause of Christ would be a lot better served. A lot of these folks that want to go to bat for these false prophets are the first ones to stick a knife in their church family. Isn't that true? A lot of them that are ready immediately to go to bat for their favorite author or their favorite Bible teacher on the TBN or whatever it might be are the first ones to gossip about their, their church family. Now, I'm just saying, if there's anybody we're going to give the benefit of the doubt to, I think it ought to be our church family, and not some fourth-time preacher on the TV. Amen? I just, you know, I knew we had to have a kind moment, so I wanted to get that out of the way. Verse 11, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Look at this. Then is the offense of the cross ceased. What is Paul saying here in verse 11? If I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? I'm sure there was many folks that had said, leading up to Paul writing this letter, I'm sure there was, uh, there's always a few different groups, I'm sure there was one group that was saying, oh, that Paul, you know, he, he, you don't need to listen to him, he's going to lead you astray. But then I'm sure there was another group that was probably saying something like this. Well, you know, Paul, he's in Hebrew of Hebrews. And when Paul gets here, he's just going to encourage you. Paul would want you to live this way. Paul would expect you to live this way. Paul says, if I, if I preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? The key to this is found in the next phrase. Then is the offense of the cross ceased. The cross is only offensive in the context of grace. The cross is only offensive in the context of grace. Do you know why people are so quick to adopt salvation or sanctification through works? Because if it's of works, then it's no more of grace. And if it's of works, then that which is given is not a gift, it's a debt. 
And if it's of works, why did God say that salvation would not be of works? By grace you save through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. What? Lest any man should boast. Salvation by works or sanctification by works gives room to boasting. And that's why men are so quick to adopt it. The cross of Christ tells you and I that we're worthless, rotten sinners. And that's why it's offensive. The cross of Christ tells you and I that even after saved, we cannot uh, become what we need to be through the energy of our flesh, but only through the surrender to the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's offensive. It tells us that we are not enough. Paul says, why do I suffer all this persecution if I preach circumcision? If I preach circumcision, he says, no one would be upset. The offense of the cross has ceased. The only reason they get upset is because it implies that they are incapable and insufficient. And that to this day is why the cross of Christ is so hated. I read an interesting quote uh, by the, the Roman Cicero. If you know anything about history, you know who Cicero is. And uh, at that time, by the way, crucifixion, in the way they crucified Christ, it was unique. But crucifixion was a common Roman practice. And he made this interesting statement. It was considered such an offensive thing. He said, the cross, the word cross should not even be mentioned in polite company. Why? Because the notion of a death on a cross was so horrendous and so offensive. It was the death of a common criminal. It was the death of someone that was... was uh, considered an outcast of society. And Cicero said it, it shouldn't even be mentioned. The word cross shouldn't even be mentioned in polite company. I would say that Cicero would be pretty well accepted in this day that we live in. Because that, that same thought is still being propagated. That this notion of this bloody religion and this bloody book and that bloody cross and that need of salvation by grace. Oh no, we can do it through our own self-effort. We can do it through our humanistic efforts and through our social advancements. We can do it on our own. But to say that the cross is the only way is to imply that we are incapable. Paul says, if I'm preaching salvation by works, I wouldn't suffer persecution. I suffer persecution because I preach it of grace. He says in verse 12, I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. Now, I don't know what Paul meant by that. I know that's not very encouraging for your Bible teacher to say that, but I don't know if Paul means that he wishes they were cast out of that church uh, fellowship. I, I don't know if he means that he wishes they, they die. I don't know if he means that he wishes that God would take them out of this world and that they would be damned to hell. But I would say this. This is going to be strong language, and I don't know if you'll agree with it. But I would say that any of those meanings would be applicable for those that would lead people away from the cross and towards salvation by their own works. You say, preacher, that's harsh. Well, you better just be thankful I'm not God. What did Paul say? He talks about laying waste to the church. And he says, but I received mercy because I did it in ignorance. It had been Paul at one time. Paul had been the one at one point that was holding the coats of those that stoned Stephen, that, that was chasing down Christians and leading them away in chains. Paul had been that person. We all all the time get so critical of Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. God can save Pharisees. I'm thankful he can. Pharisees need saving. Amen? But let me say that, that Paul uses this same kind of language in the first chapter when he, he talks about anathema being written upon those that preached another gospel. 
And I don't think that we need to take lightly what Paul is saying here when he says, I would they were cut off. I don't think he's merely saying, well, I wish they'd stop. I think Paul's saying, if I had my way, they'd be snuffed out in one way or another. And they wouldn't have any influence over you anymore. That's how strongly the Bible feels about legalism and about salvation and sanctification through our own good works. Verse number 13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Now, that's what we just talked about a second ago. Liberty doesn't mean a life of carnality. Not an occasion to the flesh. You see, liberty is the ability to choose. What Paul says is, you've been called to choose. You've been called to liberty. But he's saying, don't use that liberty as an excuse to do the wrong thing. That's those folks that are in the ditch on the, on the theological left. That's those folks that are saying, oh, I'm not under the law, and no one can tell me what to do, so I'm going to do what I want to do. Paul says, don't use liberty as an occasion to the flesh. It says, but by love, serve one another. When we read that verse, or at least when I read it, I've always put the emphasis on the phrase, serve one another. Because he just said, use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but serve one another. But really the emphasis is the phrase, but by love, serve one another. He's saying, okay, here are your options in your mindset. In your mindset, your options is either you live a life of having to do what you're told, or you get to do what you want to do. Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't live a life of just doing what you're told, but don't live a life of doing what you tell yourself to do either. You have the liberty to choose. So choose to serve one another, but choose to do it in love. Because you love one another, and because you love Christ. One of the things that I, and I don't mean this negatively about any other church, I just, you know, I don't go to any other church, so I'm going to brag on my church, amen? Your church may be better than my church, but I don't go to your church, and every crow thinks his crow's the blackest, so I'm going to brag on mine. One of the things I love about our church is I sincerely believe that our folks love one another. I really believe that. I believe they love one another. I believe that they do what they do because they love God and they love one another. Now, I, I hope we're not a, a theologically loose church. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I hope that, we, you know, we're, we're not a, a morally or, or spiritually loose church. I don't believe we are. I mean, we don't, you know, we're not having keggers or anything. And yet, I find that our people do have a joy and a peace and a happiness that a lot of churches are lacking. You see, Paul's, Paul's not saying, no, Paul's saying, don't go out and do what you want to do. Let God change your want to and do what God wants you to do, but do it because you want to do it and do it out of love. Do it for the Lord and do it out of love. That's our ultimate option. Not to live in a life of bondage, living up to men's expectations, but also not to live in a life of bondage to our own flesh, but to accept this liberty to choose and to choose the right thing. To serve one another out of love. Verse 14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Can, can I do something a little unique? And, and, and listen, I, and y'all know me well enough. I, I probably won't do this anywhere, but, but y'all know me well enough. You know that I'm not, I'm not changing our Bible. Our Bible's perfect. But I find something interesting here. He says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word. 
Now, I understand what he's saying. When he says one word, he's not saying necessarily one singular word. He's saying in, in this word, like if a person would say, let me speak a word to you or a word with you. I, I'm aware of that. But if we were to follow it in that way, if, if Paul would say it's fulfilled in one word, and we were to just pick one word out of that next phrase, what do you think that word would be? Love. Love. One word, love. You remember what happened when the scribes came and the lawyers? You won't find a lawyer in the Word of God that's a good one. <laughs> you won't, so, and I told you the Word of God's a really practical book because that's what you see in No, I'm joking. But the lawyers came to him. They said, which is the greatest commandment? Which is the greatest? And they were going to trip him up. That's what lawyers do. <laughs> they would trip him up. And they came to him all the time trying to trip him up. And he said, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. He said, and if that ain't good enough, the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. What one word, love. And then he said this, on these hang all the law and the prophets. You see, the love of Calvary and the love of God shed abroad in our hearts could accomplish the one thing that the law never could do, and that's change our desire and our motive. You know what it is to try to get someone to do something when their heart's not really in it. God knew what it was to try to get mankind to do something that their heart was really not in. So what did God do? God changed our hearts. <laughs> God changed our hearts. God said, I want them to do my law. I won't accomplish it by writing it on their foreheads or their hands or their doorposts. I must write it on their heart. God wanted us to be obedient. He said, I know that it won't, it won't accomplish it by writing it on stone tablets or on parchment of animal skins. So I'll write it on their hearts. I'll write it that it might be motivated and birthed out of love. All the law is fulfilled in this one word. Love. If we love one another, we'll do what the law was intended to do, to a degree. If we love the Lord, then we won't sit there and count all the restrictions God's putting on us. If we love one another, we won't count all the mistakes they've made. Love covereth a multitude of sins. We'll just learn to love one another. What's the alternative? I'll just read this and close. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Well, that's fair warning to us, isn't it? There's a lot of us that spend a lot of our time doing that. I, and I'm not in this room, at least I hope not. That spend a lot of our time biting and consuming one another. Always trying to bring someone else down that we might be brought up. If we bite and consume one another, we better take heed. Because listen to me, we can only take so many bites out of each other before we're gone. We can only take so many swings at someone and so many stabs at someone, and they can only take so many at you before they whittled you down to nothing. And we better learn that the only way we're going to become what we need to be is if we'll submit ourselves to the leading of the Holy Ghost, motivated out of our love for Jesus Christ, birthed out of the activity of Calvary in our hearts when He redeemed us and saved us. 
and learn that that same love is what motivates us to be good to one another and to take care of one another.